0: YouTubers, thrill seekers, small gerbils, and people named Bob. Hello, I'm your humble host with slightly above average intelligence, style, and good looks, Mr. Palumbo, and welcome to the Professor Liberty Podcast. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. All of you dedicated listeners. You know, your dedication inspires me to put on quality shows that are educational and thought-provoking, and perhaps even a tad entertaining. But boy, that is a tough, that is a very high bar to meet. I'm trying my best. We do our best here at Professor Liberty, but please don't forget, if you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating. And for a limited time, I'm going to sweeten the deal. I'm sitting on this pile of stickers, Professor Liberty stickers, and I thought, if you give me a five-star rating... And if you leave me a positive review, I'll send you a free Professor Liberty sticker that you can put, well, anywhere, really. Just send me an email or message me on Facebook with your name, address, and once I can verify that you left a written review, I'll send you a sticker. Now, what's really fascinating about this, boys and girls, if you're a collector, if you've got the collector bug, I tend to have a collector's bug, I can get into collecting things. The Professor Liberty logo is on uh, the fast track to being changed. We're we're updating the logo. So these stickers have the current logo, which could sooner than later become the old logo. So if you like the logo and you want a sticker, now's the time to get one. So today we're going to talk about, we're going to continue our first American series with an episode called Cowboys... Indians and reservations. And today we're going to look at the closing off of the Western frontier and how the U.S. government decided to deal with the, quote, problem of the indigenous people still living and trying to carve out a life for themselves within the boundaries of the United States. The first thing I want to discuss is just how fast Western expansion happened. If you remember, 1803 is when President Jefferson made the greatest real estate deal in history with the Louisiana Purchase. This doubled the size of the United States with a stroke of a pen. So from approximately, say, the Appalachian Mountains to the Pacific Ocean, at that time was all Indian frontier. But by 1890, with the massacre at Wounded Knee, which many historians cite as kind of the last big hoorah, the last final conflict between U.S. forces and armed Indian resistance, the frontier's gone. So within 87 years or say two or maybe two and a half generations, the entire continental United States is conquered by Anglo-Americans. That's really fast, folks. And we've discussed before on previous episodes, because of a multitude of reasons, the natives just really did not stand a chance. Now, contrary to popular narratives today, you know, that whites just wanted to kill all the Indians and get them all out of the way and take their land, like everything else in history, it's more complex than that. In fact, I would argue that just as much As there was a desire and a greed for the land and there was racism and there was hatred against the natives, there was also a segment of European culture, of Anglo-American culture, of, quote, white culture that wanted to treat the natives with respect. Now, they were in the extreme minority But they were still there. There was a segment of European culture that wanted to convert the natives to Christianity. They wanted to help them integrate into white society. And ultimately, they didn't want them to be needlessly slaughtered. At the time, this segment of the culture, this segment of the society, would have been known as liberals, by the way. Even Christopher Columbus's first encounter with natives on Hispaniola was in good faith. His diary said that the natives were nice people. They were they were well-mannered. They were, you know, he called them kind of like children, but he said that they would convert to Christianity easily. Now, I'm just trying to point out that the this whole oppressed oppressor marxist narrative never really holds up once a person begins to dig deeper. The story of American expansion, you know, white people are the bad guys and everyone else is the good guys does not hold up. It's not true. What about the Mexicans? How did they treat the natives? Oh, who cares? America stole their land, which they stole from Spain, which Spain stole from the Aztecs. But, you know, only the Anglo-Americans are the enemies in all the stories. And my point is, you know, I don't know what the ratio is. Maybe it's one in every 10. But I just want you to know that for every white person killing Indians, stealing their land, Uh, You know, there were white people advocating for fair treatment and calling out the injustices. Just like with slavery, for every white person enslaving and abusing a black person, there were white people from the very beginning of this country pushing for abolition. Now, they were in the minority, but they were still there. And remember, at least 300,000 Union soldiers, I'm sure 99.9% of them, quote, white, died for black people. They didn't even know they died to keep the union together and they ultimately died to end slavery. I want to go back real quick to this idea, this, this liberal idea of, you know, white people need to help natives. They need to help. uh, What do you call it? Civilize them, right? This is known as the white man's burden. You can look this up. If you're interested in the topic, I might do podcasts on it later. This idea prevailed well into the 20th century, by the way. Personally, I see a lot of the same thinking and activity with some of these social justice groups today. You see a lot of liberal white people taking the mantle of spokesperson for the so-called oppressed minorities. I saw a meme. It had a large mob of BLM protesters. And it read, trying to find a black person at a BLM rally... Is harder to find than where's Waldo? And the picture was, you know, fifty or a hundred or one hundred and fifty uh, white people, you know, protesting for BLM. And so this idea, this advocacy, or what I call the white savior complex, isn't new. And some of it is well intentioned. Now we all know what we say about well intentions, but I'm going to talk. So I'm going to talk about this as you know, at least the natives. My, you know, they might, have, they might have had well-intentioned liberals for their advocate groups, but frankly, if they, would have had, if they wouldn't have had those people, they would have had no advocacy at all. And remember, uh, when we talked about the Cherokee, a lot of white Christians were helping the Cherokee with their Supreme Court case to stay in Georgia, which they won, even though they lost because the president came in and made a move anyway. Well, maybe not the president personally, but the army. So I say all of this just to say that we have to be mindful not to get into this mindset of all white people are bad. I know there's a push for that, but history is complex. Okay, so let's talk about the, re- the reservation. What is it? Where did this idea come from? A reservation is a plot of land that was set aside for different native tribes to live on. One of the first attempts at establishing a reservation was in Georgia with the Cherokee Nation. We just talked about them. Uh, This was in 1785. The young state of Georgia signed a treaty with the Cherokee promising to give them portions of the state for them to live on and not be bothered by white expansion. Mind you, Cherokees occupied nearly the entire state before this treaty, so their territory is drastically cut. Of course, the Cherokee, God bless them, agreed to the arrangement hoping to secure peace and stability. But a common theme in this story, unfortunately, the whites kept encroaching on their lands that they promised not to bother, and eventually the Cherokee, like we said earlier, were removed uh, by the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The actual concept of reservations began to take shape when Congress passed the Indian Appropriations Act of 1851. History.com explains it this way. The Indian Reservation System established tracts of land called reservations for Native Americans to live on as white settlers took over their land. The main goal of the Indian Reservation was to bring Native Americans under U.S. government control, minimize conflict between Natives and settlers, and encourage Native Americans to take on the ways of the white man, Life on these reservations were difficult for a myriad of reasons. U.S. org explains it this way. Besides the moral issue of depriving a people of life on their historic land, many economic issues plagued the reservations. Nomadic tribes lost their entire means of subsistence being constricted to a defined area. Farmers found themselves with land unsuitable for agriculture. Many lacked the know-how to implement complex irrigation systems. Hospital tribes often forced to live in the same proximity, and the results were disastrous. So here you have a group of people used to, in many ways, uh, adapted to a certain way of life. Okay, they've been doing they've been doing it this way for generations and you stick them on a crappy piece of land with no agricultural value and they themselves have no farming skills. And on top of that, these reservations are completely reliant on government funding. You know what else is government funded, right? Public roads. How do your roads look? How many potholes do you have on your roads, ladies and gentlemen? Beware. You know what else is government-funded? Schools. Boy, those new school buildings that are millions and millions of dollars, they sure look nice. But what's the quality of the education going on inside the schools? We talked about that in our episode, Race to the Bottom. So we know economically that if something is government-funded, it's probably not going to be in the best shape or it's probably not going to be run in the most efficient way. So instead of having a road funded or a school system funded, we have an entire community reliant on government funds. Needless to say, poverty back then and poverty now is rampant on Indian reservations. According to nativepartnership.org, quote, about 22% of our country's 5.2 million Native Americans live on tribal lands. Living conditions on the reservation has been cited as comparable to the third world. It is impossible to succinctly describe the many factors that have contributed to the challenges that Native Americans face today, but the following facts about the pressing issues of economics, health, and housing give a hint of what life is like for the first Americans, unquote. And the site goes on to talk about lack of jobs, lack of health care, lack of housing uh, for all or most of reservations in this country. You know, personally, it really this really breaks my heart. When I think about these natives, especially that first generation, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a tragedy for the whole thing. But, you know, think about that first generation, You have to stay on this crappy piece of land. If you resist, you're going to be killed by the army. And if you stay on the piece of land, you're probably going to die of starvation. So talk about lose-lose. And, you know, when I was reading and researching about the funding for native reservations, I keep thinking about why is the government giving to foreign countries? Why are we giving money to overseas countries when we've got people here in this country starving? They don't have housing. They don't have jobs. But we're going to give them a little bit. And then we're going to give, you know, uh, I think it was $500 million to this country, $500 million to that country. It's just, it's insane. All right, sorry. The libertarian in me kind of poked out. I'll stick, I'll stuff him back in. But you know, my point is, folks, here we this is what a hundred percent government funded looks like. You have some reservations. Now you have some that are more stable than others, but this is communism. This is socialism. The government is completely in control of the distribution of goods and services. And look at the result. Under communism, also remember there is no property ownership. No one knows, they don't own anything. And coincidentally, once you don't own something, you don't care about it. Think renter's mentality. And on these reservations, everything is communal. Writing for Forbes magazine, John, and I hope I get his name right, kopish writes, at a time when there's a spotlight on America's richest 1%, a look at the country's 310 Indian reservations, where many of the America's poorest 1% live, can be more enlightening. To explain the poverty of reservations, people usually point to alcoholism, corruption, or school dropout rates, not to mention the long distances to jobs and the dusty, underdeveloped land that doesn't seem good for growing much of anything. But those are just symptoms. Prosperity is built on property rights, and the reservations have neither. They are a demonstration of what happens when property rights are weak or non-existent. Unquote. You know, I couldn't help but notice going all the way back to our first episode of the first Americans, that clash of worldviews, and here again, that idea of property ownership is kind of peeking its ugly head out again, right? And this idea between individualism versus community. Kopish goes on to make the point that since individual natives don't own the land their houses sit on, which is why they all have mobile homes, he adds, there's no incentive to improve upon it or maintain it. He also states that since American Indians don't own anything, they can't use it for collateral to get loans or build credit. Well, this is a great point in the show to discuss the Dawes Act of 1887. Signed by President Cleveland, the Dawes Act allowed for reservation lands to be privatized and owned by individual natives. So think kind of the more European model, you know, small family farms, private property. History.com writes, the government hoped the legislation would help Indians assimilate into white culture easier and faster and improve their quality of life. But the Dawes Act had a devastating impact on the Native American tribes it decreased the land owned by Indians by more than half and opened up more land to white settlers and railroads. Much of the reservation land wasn't good for farming and many Indians could not afford the supplies needed to reap a harvest, Now what's interesting is when you do some research, this was one narrative of why the Dawes act didn't work, but, uh, It also didn't work because it threatened the relevancy of the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs. So going back to that Forbes article, Kopish writes, any effort at land reform must go through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But the Bureau, originally part of the War Department, and one of the oldest federal government agencies we have, isn't about to pave the way for its own demise by signing off on an effort to privatize reservation land. The Bureau faced this situation before. Under the Dawes Act of 1887, land could be allotted to individual natives. But by 1934, so much land had been privatized that Congress reversed course and communal property was back in favor. And this is interesting what he says here. Allotment threatened the Bureau, so it had an incentive to end the process. Didn't we just talk about this? I don't, even, I don't remember the episode, but once a government policy is enacted, or a department is established, it grows and grows and grows. It never seems to die. It never seems to have a reason to die. It never becomes obsolete or irrelevant. Like Ronald Reagan once said, the closest thing to eternal life on this planet is a government program. So here you have uh, a, a, an attempt to help the Indians through private property ownership. And it had some other reasons why it didn't work, but it was, it was decreasing the purpose or the reason for the Bureau of Indian affairs. Well, the Bureau of Indian affairs, isn't going to go quietly into the night. Their whole purpose for being is to help Indians. So if Indians can start helping themselves, what do you need the bureau for you guys? This is the bureaucracy. Every government program needs to have somebody to serve or else why have it? There's also an incentive on the side of the native leaders, uh, you know, so they don't want to break up the reservations into small plots because many councils, many of these tribal councils, see their vast amount of land as a bargaining chip or a sense of power or influence when negotiating with the federal government. So there's so many incentives to kind of keep perpetuating this cycle. So what do reservations look like today? History.com writes, Modern Indian reservations still exist across the United States and fall under the umbrella of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Each tribe on each reservation is sovereign and is not subject to federal law. They handle most reservation-related obligations, but depend on the federal government for financial support. On many reservations, the main source of revenue is tourism and gambling. According to the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, 567 federally organized American Indian tribes... And Alaska Natives reside in the United States. The BIA is responsible for improving their quality of life, providing them with economic opportunities, and improving their assets, which the BIA holds in trust. Despite their efforts, living conditions on reservations aren't ideal and are often compared to that of a third world country. We just discussed that. Housing is overcrowded and often below standards, and many people on reservations are stuck in a cycle of poverty. So in closing, folks, I'd like to end with what uh, John Kopish points out that, you know, these reservation systems have created a culture of dependency. He points out that after decades and decades of living off government assistance, many Native cultures are stuck in this cycle of just waiting for free money. He says that entrepreneurs are called sellouts, and success is often ridiculed. And we can see this mindset with other minority cultures as well. This idea or fear of success, or this ridicule of talking white or dressing white. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Government dependency destroys human dignity. There are signs in the forest that say don't feed the bears. And those signs are there for a reason. If you feed wild bears, they forget how to take care of themselves. They become dependent. And the same thing happens to us. After years of welfare, we come to depend on the scraps instead of fulfilling our full potential. Government dependency Took a proud band of warriors, craftspeople, horsemen, and buffalo hunters and turned them into wanderers, beggars, and drunks. This is a cautionary tale we should all be teaching our kids. And it has nothing to do with race. Government dependency can affect everybody black, white, Hispanic, Native, it doesn't matter. As the statistics show, more white people are on welfare than anyone else in this country. Government dependency props up the government because it gives them something to do, and it oppresses people because instead of working hard, instead of going out and getting what they can get, oftentimes way more than they're receiving from the government, they stay home in this diminished status, waiting for the check here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please give me a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. If you like to email the show, the email is Professor Liberty 1776 at gmail.com. Send me all your government, history, and economics questions there. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty.